Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Suffering with Spurs podcast with me, Sean Torgerman. Uh, this is episode 11. I'm going to be reviewing the Palace game from Friday. And the reason I'm doing this one a little bit later is because there's going to be a bit of a bit more of a preview to, to next Monday's return of Pochettino to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, because I think it's quite a big moment um, in the season. It's a very profound moment. Like We didn't ever really envisage that Pochettino was going to be returning with Chelsea uh, when he did. A lot of us thought he was going to be returning as Spurs manager. But yeah, we'll get into that later on when it comes to the preview of that game, because it is another massive game. And the reason, aside from the fact that it is Spurs-Chelsea, that it is a massive game is because we will be, by that time, probably trying to go back top of the league. Um, you would imagine that we would have been overtaken at the top of the league by the time we play on Monday because uh, Man City have got Bournemouth at home, I think, which you can only imagine is going to be a, uh, a massacre. Um, Arsenal have got Newcastle away, so you would hope that Newcastle do us a favour there. Um, Obviously, the season we got top four under Conte, we relied on Newcastle to beat Arsenal at home and they did 2-0 that day and Arsenal fell apart, looked like a bang average side and there was no real indication at that time that they were going to go on and do what they did the following season, but they did. Um, and then last season, obviously, Arsenal went to the St. James Park and won 2-0. So it's not as straightforward as I would have said it would have been in the past because Arsenal have proven that they can go to places like that and get results. Um, and Newcastle aren't in amazing form. Uh, they lost, didn't they, to Dortmund at home in what was actually a really good game. Probably wasn't a 1-0 game. Um, and then they drew the Wolves. But yeah, anyway, enough of those. We'll get to those fixtures later on. Um, Friday, Spurs. Feels like an age ago now, but we... One again in what was another difficult away game. That's obviously, that's 10 games in. We've played six of them away from home, which I really don't think gets mentioned enough when um, when it's being spoken about on Sky or TNT or anything like that. I don't think they mention, they very rarely mention that, in fact, we may be top of the league and we may have paid, played some of the sort of teams in the lower echelons of the league as well as some of the top. But... Six of those 10 games have been away from home. And we're unbeaten away from home in those six games. We've won four and drawn two. And Palace isn't an easy place to go. We tend to do quite well there, but it isn't an easy place to go. And Friday was another test that we came through with flying colours and we, we made it look relatively easy, I would say, as well, considering that... Um, yeah, it was, just another diff it was just another way to win a game that we haven't really shown so far, which was going to a place where they have very little intention of sort of coming out and pressing you. And that was proven in the fact that at, for, in various different moments during the game, but one specifically, there was about a two-minute stint where Vicario was just playing it back and forth with Romero just at will. And the reason they carried on doing it is because there was literally no pressing from Palace at all. They had no intention of breaking their lines or or moving or pressing to get the ball or making sort of Romero have to make a pass or making Vicario have to kick it long. Like it was ridiculous, really, at some point. It was almost farcical. Um, 
So yeah, that that but that also makes that sort of game hard. Although it looks easy to just pass it back and forth between the keeper and the central defender, it actually makes it very difficult to look for spaces and and create chances because Palace are very reluctant to sort of come out of their shape. So yeah, it, it's not an easy place to go, and very rarely do teams go and sort of bat a Palace. Um, like I said, we've got a very good record there, and uh, and I mean this specifically under Roy Hodgson, really, because obviously in the in the Vieira era they were a little bit easier to play against, and we we obviously beat them four 0 there last season when Vieira was still the manager. But Roy Hodgson just isn't that type of manager. Um, we I found it bemusing that Palace gave him the job for another year. I know he did well at the end of last season to keep him up, but it's just not a forward-thinking thing to do. And I can just can't imagine what it's like to be a Palace fan right now because it's just not. I just can't imagine it's very enjoyable. Um, and yeah, the game comes with a caveat that Palace were without probably their two best players in uh, Eze and Elise, who's been out for a while, I think. Um, so that definitely put the game in our favour in terms of not having too many attacking threats. Jordan Ayew, although he scored a... Well, he, his finish was brilliant. Goal definitely should have been disallowed because he clearly handled it. And I don't know how the VAR didn't come to that conclusion, but I'm not going to go into that. Um, yeah, they're, they're, with Jordan Ayew as their main sort of attacking threat and Will Hughes coming from what seemed like attacking midfield, it, it wasn't a game that that had much jeopardy in terms of Palace being a, a threat on the on the attack. But to break them down was never going to be easy. And that proved in the first half. And obviously, as fans, we want to see the, the team sort of go forward constantly and create loads of chances and all that. And obviously, we did have loads of possession. But in that first half, it was very frustrating. We didn't look like we were really going to create anything. Um, Richarlison, who hasn't been that bad in the last couple of games, and he's obviously created a few goals... He was the ball was just falling off his feet every time it came into contact with him, and that was getting quite frustrating. Um, so it wasn't a, it definitely wasn't a good first half in terms of what we saw as the fans. But as you as you listen to uh, Postacoglu at the end of the game, he he wasn't frustrated by it probably in the same way as the fans were because he went into it knowing that this was going to be a game which required a lot of patience. Um, probing, keeping hold of the ball, passing the ball around, looking for spaces. And that wasn't necessarily going to be very easy. And um, that first half obviously was frustrating as a fan, but it it was uh, it was definitely encouraging to see that how patient we were, that we weren't just... And that's sort of, obviously, it's on one hand, you get frustrated about the fact that it's taken so long to find a space and to probe, but... That's just so good that we're a team now that keeps possession and doesn't sort of give up after sort of 10 or 15 seconds and play a long ball, a hopeless, aimless long ball like we would have done under Conte and Mourinho. And I don't want to dig out Eric Dyer when he hasn't even been playing, but Eric Dyer was the main culprit, I mean, along with Sanchez, to be fair, um, of just pay, playing an aimless long ball when there didn't seem to be any space. When we had the ball under Conte, we didn't use to probe and look for spaces. If there wasn't an obvious pass on within sort of five or 10 seconds, one of the centre-backs would play a hopeful long ball in the hope that someone would get their head on it and it would give the ball straight back to the opposition. And we aren't that team anymore. Um, you can tell 1,000% that 
and just drilled it into these players that they aren't to just break character and hit a long ball forward just for the sake of it. If you can't find a pass, you keep passing until one becomes available. And um, yeah, he, I mean, it's, it'll be one of the reasons that Dyer doesn't play and it'll be, and it'll be one of the reasons that someone like Van der Ven was signed because Van der Ven, I'm trying to think now, and before I said it, I thought, am I uh, mischaracterizing this here? I don't, remember van der ven ever playing an aimless long ball he looks for a pass every time romero can play a long ball occasionally but it's very often very accurate so uh yeah i mean that's as i said that we all know that we're playing a completely different type of football now from what we used to play but it's also very telling that those halves of football where we may not be creating much aren't being supplemented with a load of pointless long balls. They're they're frustrating as much as anything because of the opposition and the way they're playing, as opposed to what it used to be, which was us and the way we were playing. We are now playing a style that in, sort of requires certain opposition to frustrate us. And uh, yeah, that... And so it did take what you would have to say was a mistake from Palace, the Joel Ward own goal, to sort of change the course of the game and the way that it was being played, really, because up until that point, we'd been obviously, like I said, probing, playing it around, um, but without much real luck. And as Anne just said in his interview since, there isn't only one way to win a game. And if you're not being particularly effective with the ball or you're being sort of nullified by a very organised defence, then the other way to score a goal is to put them under extreme pressure when they've got the ball and force them into a mistake. And that's how a lot of our goals, well, especially in the last couple of games, have really come because um, both of the goals against Fulham on Monday night last week were as a result of Madison's pressing. And then this first goal came as a result of exactly the same thing. And I, 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 I'm surprised by James Madison every single week because he... There's just, we obviously all saw James Madison. We were all excited to get him as a player and we all knew what he was capable of. We'd seen his, we'd seen him play for Leicester plenty of times. I'm sure every, everyone had, but, and we'd seen his goal highlights, reels of all the brilliant free kicks, long range goals, like his technique, all of that sort of stuff. But I guarantee you, no one knew that he had this sort of engine, I suppose you'd call it, where he's capable of chasing things down. So, so well and that wasn't a part of his game I knew existed and it's not it's definitely not something I remember from his time at Leicester it's obviously part of what Postacoglu um, asks his attacking players especially to do to close down and to chase down what may seem lost causes but Madison just does his his pressing so intelligent it's not not just aimlessly running about like a headless chicken like he presses at exactly the right times and like I said, obviously, it was that that got us a couple of goals against Fulham. And then before the first goal, he was running down. He ran down to the keeper. The keeper put it out of play. Well, he put it, he passed it and it, it was a defender on the right-hand side that wasn't able to keep it in play. We kept the ball moving from then on, fell to Saar. His pass deflected into the path of Madison. But, I mean, in that position the ball literally deflected onto him and he was able to hit this brilliant, like, hard volley. And, yeah, I mean, in that 
the reason that Ward put it into his own net because he had no time at all to readjust his body. And that's another own goal for Spurs. And that's the third own goal we've had this season. We obviously had um, the one against United when Ben Davis sort of went to kick, went to kick it and it definitely didn't make contact with him. We had the lovely Joel Matip own goal against Liverpool, which they're still crying about, and uh, this one. But they've all been enforced. They haven't been like ridiculous mistakes. We're talking about players being put under pressure or really good balls being put into the box. The Pedro Porro ball was like a, a really well-struck cross. This was really quick. James Madison um, volley, quick thinking. It fell to him like in midair, and that was his first the first thing that he did and that fell to Joel Ward who couldn't really do anything about it. And then that, that obviously changed the way that Palace had to play after that. And they had to come out a little bit more. They didn't change massively, but we definitely had a little bit more of a hold on the game after that. And then I was really, really happy with uh, Boss Coglu's substitutions. And a lot of his substitutions are very work very subtly. Um, but I felt like these ones were actually necessary. Even though we did go 1-0 up, I didn't think Basuma had had a great game. Um, the norm of the obvious change would have been to take Saar off and bring Hoiberg on, um, but he didn't do that. He took Basuma off, who who I think just before that nearly lost the ball on the edge of his box just from being his casual self. Um, he is definitely um, susceptible to a little bit of loss of concentration, Basuma. Um, and he he didn't look fully on the ball in that um, in that game. Whether whether it was playing on his mind that he was still on a yellow card from the four yellows that he'd got before, and he wants to play in the Chelsea game, who knows? But um, Postecoglou made the decision to bring on Hoiberg, who's becoming more and more important in this Postecoglou team. He really is. Um, and Saar had been having a good game already up until that point, and he's, he only got better. Um, and he obviously took off Richarlison as well for Brennan Johnson, and that is really when we looked a lot more dangerous going forward because Richarlison just hadn't had a good game. And I, I do think when Johnson's up to full fitness, and it may even be this Chelsea game, I'd, I'd struggle to see Richarlison getting in that team in the first eleven when, um, when Johnson's fully fit because he... We haven't seen hardly anything of him, obviously, so far. He uh, he came on in the Sheffield United game, didn't he? Then started the Arsenal game, got injured. This was the first we'd really seen of him properly since then. I think he came on for a few minutes against Fulham, didn't he? Um, but yeah, it's it just such a good substitution from, from Postacoglu because I hate to keep harping back on to what Conte did and the way that he was, but that's our close, that's our most recent reference point. You knew what the substitutions were going to be with Antonio Conte. No matter how the players were playing on the pitch, you knew who was coming off for who, and you knew in what minute near enough every time that that was going to happen as well. It very often would be Richarlison for Kulisevsky in the 75th minute or Son at different times during the season. Um, Saar would ne- very rarely have been brought on as a sub when the other when Hoiberg and Benton in their peak would have been fit. But you don't... with with Postacoglu, because like I said, the standard substitution would have probably been take Saar off, bring Hoiberg on, because Saar's the most inexperienced. But he saw that Basuma wasn't playing brilliantly. Hoiberg had played in Basuma's position against Fulham and been really effective, brought him on, no issue at all. Um, and he proved him right, because about five minutes after that, Saar plays a brilliant 
crossfield pass without thinking, didn't even look up. Brilliant ball out to Johnson. And I love this goal so much. It might even be my favourite Spurs goal of the season. And we've had some lovely ones already, but I just think that this move is just so good. Saar crossfield pass to Johnson. And Johnson, instead of taking it down, just this brilliant sort of leaping header um, over the top to Madison. Uh, just an in indication of this like direct football that we're playing. It's not when the opportunity is there, play it quickly. Don't get the ball dawdle on it in the nicest way possible. I don't, maybe I'm wrong for saying this. I don't think Richarlison would have done that. Although Richarlison is quite good at playing it first time and he and he does see people in space and that's been the reason that he's got a couple of assists recently. That was just a really innovative thing to do from Johnson, I think, um, because it didn't seem like that, that header was, was on. And he, he made the diving header over to um, Madison. Brilliant footwork from Madison. I mean, never has someone deserved an assist for a goal so much as Madison did there because he it was so important, the work that he did to get it back over to Johnson. Johnson obviously played that header over, then raced back into the box. Madison, brilliant footwork, flicked it over to him. First time pass from Johnson and Sonny in exactly the right place to put it away. And... Uh, that obviously changed the game because it it gave us a bit of a, a cushion, but it was just such a good goal. Um, really, really brilliant play between players with just great football brains. Saar knew exactly where Johnson was, didn't even look up, perfectly timed pass. Johnson with the header, then didn't rest on his laurels, ran straight back in there to pick it up for the assist from the brilliant Madison and... There was Sonny, Sonny straight away pointing to, to Johnson, obviously really acknowledging that that was his first real contribution to the team in terms of a goal or an assist. Um, and they went over to the travelling fans and celebrated real passion and emotion I saw from Christian Romero, especially on both goals. Really happy about that. And they can, you can feel that when we score a goal now, like it's not just a goal. They know that they're in a really good position at the moment. We're 10 games in, I know, but they know that they're, they're top of the league and they want to, whether this lasts or whether it doesn't, right now they've got something to hold on to. So every win feels absolutely massive because, you know, they're footballers and they're winners. They're, anyone to make it to the level of professional footballer at that level has to be, have a winning mentality and they don't all get to win. Um, and anyone who says that, players have got to lose a mentality or anything like that. They just obviously don't understand what it takes to be a professional, to get to that sort of level. And most of those players haven't experienced victory in their footballing careers yet. Aside from, um, obviously, Romero, who's won the World Cup and the Copa America in, at club level, in Europe at least, he hasn't he hasn't won anything as the rest of a lot of that squad have obviously been with Tottenham for a long, long time and they haven't won anything. Um, Porro's won uh, the league with Sporting Lisbon. Uh, Madison's won the FA Cup with Leicester, but and he didn't start in the FA Cup final, which I'm sure will definitely be something that still plays on his mind. So for a lot of them, like no matter what you say, they're not players who've had a lot of success in their life. So for them, they'll obviously see what's going on in this club and think, look, this is a big opportunity. Will we have this chance again? They're benefiting massively from not having to play twice a week as mo nearly every other club that they're competing against is, um, especially in the, the sort of top eight. 
uh, and that's huge for them. Um, obviously, we did play twice in a week that time, and that we we got through that pretty well. But um, after that second goal, the game settled down a bit, and you, Hoiberg was, like I said, such a good substitution. He's just so calm in those situations, and it it really does doesn't get enough credit, and hopefully will get credit for it at the end of the season because there's talk about oh if he would go he wants to go to Juventus in January I'd be fucking shocked if Postacoglu would sign off letting Hoiberg go and to be honest I don't think Hoiberg would want to go at the end of the season if he's ended up just being a bit part player as as what he is now then and he's and he's not starting and Ben when Bentoncourt comes back it pushes him further back in terms of starting then maybe at the end of the season but I'd be shocked if he went midway for a season where the team are doing so well and he is getting maybe not sufficient minutes because they want to, he wants to play every week but and he wants to start every week but he's playing a very very big role at the moment and it's not just a role just for the sake of it he really is making an impact for Hoiberg. um and yeah i mean for the rest of that game it sort of it petered out it felt like it was going to peter out we were in such control um and it really did, it made me think at the time as well, and I've written it down, it really did make me feel like, it reminded me of the peak Pochettino era of 2016-17, where we finished second, and we didn't ever really feel under threat. For years with sort of Mourinho and, and Conte, we conceded so many chances, We and whenever the opposition got the ball, it felt like we were going to concede a goal especially in last season. Um, but in the peak Pochettino era, especially 16-17, we play games. We used to, in the unbeaten home season, um, We when we used to beat Watford 4-0, West Brom 4-0, I think there were plenty of up Bournemouth 4-0 in that season as well, I think. Loads of just very, very straightforward home victories and quite a few away ones as well. We were just in total control in those games. We never, ever looked like we were going to concede a goal. We had the complete composure of Alderweireld and Vertonghen at the back. Um, we had Walker and Rose on either side. We were an established top four team at that point. We were the club. We'd been title challengers for two seasons in a row. We went into those games. When you sit there, you didn't ever... It was nice to watch. It was pleasant. We didn't ever really feel like we were going to concede a goal. We didn't really feel like we were ever under any pressure. And I'm feeling that, although we obviously are conceding chances, I'm not saying we're not conceding chances, but that feeling is something that's very much present at the moment. In that game against Fulham on Monday and in this one, although we didn't thrash them, we didn't sort of run away with the game, especially once it went to 2-0, it just felt like game over. This is done now. Uh, we don't have to worry anymore because there's just so much composure at the back as much as anything else. No rushing. As I, as I said earlier, obviously, uh, Palace, for some reason, were just reluctant to break their shape as if they were going to get like bottled for it by Hodgson. It was so peculiar. If I, had to, if I had to watch Spurs play like that again, I don't know what I'd do. I think I would give up because Vicario and Romero was just bemusing, just passing it to each other endlessly because they were being put under no pressure. Then when they do eventually get put under pressure, plays it to Van der Ven. Very, very simple. Another mention has to go to Emerson Royale because um, he came on for Ben Davis, who I did think at the beginning, like I just, and I've said before, Ben Davis, really good servant to the club. Be very surprised if he stays past the end of next season. 
because he just isn't an inverted fullback. He just hasn't got the the attributes to play that position for any more than sort of five or 10 minutes at the end of a game. If, if the game needs shoring up and he can probably just play as an orthodox left back, he has not got it in him to play that. And that's why he was taken off at half time. Emerson Royale came on, obviously right footed, played in that left back position. And he was really, really good. He'll never give you what you want going forward, really. But he's definitely a lot more composed on the ball. He's definitely a lot more two-footed, I think, as well than Ben Davis. He's a lot more agile. He just Ben Davis is a perfectly reasonable left back if you're talking about someone who's playing left back, as I said, in the orthodox way. But he, obviously, Ange saw it. I saw it in the first half as well, and he changed it, and um, that really did make a, a big difference as well. I think to the outcome of the game. And Emerson Royale was really good. Another player who I feel is relatively content. With being a squad player, he's obviously he'll obviously want to start and um, and and everything. But I think that he's content that he's getting minutes here and there. He's not being sort of outcast. He's not like Eric Dyer, who it has been on the bench for the last five or six games, but doesn't get a look in and probably wouldn't. There wouldn't ever be an, a, a tactical reason to bring him on for one of the centre backs. It would only ever be an injury. But with Royale. Um, Postacoglu obviously trusts him and he's definitely earned the trust, I think, because although he is limited and a lot of the, a lot of the negative feeling around Emerson Royale basically came from the fact that he was playing played in a position that just doesn't fit his attributes, which was the case with a lot of that Conte team is a lot of them were just playing in positions to fit Conte's system, not because that's the best position for him. Um, And yeah, Emerson, will definitely thrive a lot more in a back four, as I think we always knew that he would. Um, and yeah, as I said, that game was petering out. Um, it looked like it was just going to be another one of those easy games um, that we've made made look easy recently. And then came the last sort of five minutes of injury time. And it, I think it didn't even happen to the 93rd minute. Um, and the ball's played over. Porro should probably do better. He's misjudged his header. He is, and he, there's a, Probably that was the second time in the game where he sort of didn't really look like he knew what he was doing. He he in the first half, I think was it the second half? No, maybe earlier early in the second half, ball got played over and he misjudged where it was going to fall. So I think it was Ayu at that time as well, and uh, they got an easy cross in, and that's when if there had been someone at the back post for Palace, they would have had an easy tap in for the for the what ended up being the goal. He jumped up. If he timed his header better, he's heading it away. Instead, the ball fell to Jordan Ayew, definitely handled it, rolled, came off his chest, controlled it with his hand, and then hit a brilliant sort of half volley past uh, Vicario. Couldn't do anything, really. And obviously, there was a big delay after that. And then, the, it, to be honest, we weren't really under any pressure after that. We didn't really feel like anything was going to happen. But for a fan, it was a oh my God, are we going to throw this away in injury time? Is this going to derail the season? Those thoughts start coming into your head, but we were relatively composed. Palace sort of shot themselves in the foot quite a few times with a couple of ridiculous challenges, especially one on Brian Hill, um, who'd obviously come on with with Ben and Corn. I'll get to him in a minute. Um, so yeah, the ball was one ball over the top where Porro did put off um, the attacker, who was going to potentially put it into the back of the net, but it was a 
a bad shot from him and he did get put under pressure by pro so he kind of redeemed himself in that situation but we managed to see the game out and ended up winning 2-1 and uh, as i said yeah benton core and hill came on for their first appearance of the season great perception for benton core at the end there um he's such an amazing player and to think that we've gone since february without him it almost weirdly feels like our decline of that season really coincided with uh, with Benton Core uh, being injured because I actually I was at the Leicester game when we lost four one that day and Benton Core actually scored the first goal um, that put us one nil up and then I think he got injured I think it must have been I think it was in the second half so we were already down. We two or three one down at the time. I can't remember exactly, and that's not like me to not be able to remember that. But when it happened, um, my friend Zach said to me next to me, oh, that's our season over. Um, when Ben and Cor get injured, and I kicked off at him at the time, and I was like, What are you talking about? Like, why is that our season over? because uh, I thought it was a little bit of a I thought it was a little bit too soon to say it, but it actually did turn out to be our season over after that. We did go on to beat West Ham and Chelsea after that um, in those in the next two games, but those are two poor sides that we beat. West Ham were very concentrated on Europe at the time. Chelsea were in the Graham Potter era, losing to everyone. So I don't think that's really a difference. When when Benancourt got injured that day, it did change everything. Um, for the season, because he was just, especially for that side, which lacked creativity, he really was a shining light. And he was just starting to really become a brilliant player for Spurs. He was scoring goals. Um, he was really contributing in a different way to how he had done the season before. And yeah, it was a massive, massive loss. And to think that we've got all that time without him. And then obviously this season we've gone without him. We've done well without him. To think that we've now got Benancourt to put back into that team that is going to be a huge, huge boost. Like for me, he is an unbelievably good player and I don't think it's really recognised enough in the Premier League. I do hear sort of pundits and YouTube idiots saying things like from other teams, this is saying, oh yeah, Benton calls a decent player, like giving him some sort of rating. So he is, he's rated to an extent, but I don't think we've seen the best of him yet. Uh, I think he's got a lot more to show us. His technical ability, his composure on the ball. Obviously, we can't expect too much too soon because he's just come back from what is one of the worst injuries you can get as a footballer. But um, from everything I see and hear from what um, is being spoken about in training, he's made a full recovery and it, and it won't affect him going forward. So, and they're obviously easing him in very, very slowly as well. Obviously, for players like... For attacking players, for instance, for um, people who rely very heavily on their pace, I can understand that an injury like that can sort of take away a yard from you or so, but I don't think that matters as much when you're playing in the in a central midfield role like Benton Core is. Uh, so that's a huge thing to bring him back. Brian Hill, I really want to see more of. Um, I would have, I do, obviously Johnson's great. I was hoping that Brian Hill would get brought on for a Charleston when the sub happened, just because I think there's loads to come from him as well. I think he gets really, I wouldn't say I'm fairly treated because he's been injured, but I really think he gets so unlucky with, it always seems like when there would have been a perfect opportunity for him to go into the team, everyone else is fit. And then 
he gets injured just at the wrong time because um, I think he really could have been a, an asset to us this season already. But he's fit as well, and that's another option off the bench. Um, and yeah, we're we're top of the league again, uh, and we've been top of the league now for the last sort of three weeks, and that feels obviously brilliant as it does. Um, and the longer it goes on, the longer you start to dream and start to think that your your dreams could potentially uh, come to reality. We're being told by every pundit, left, right and centre, everyone you hear on TV, everyone on talk sport, that it's too early to start thinking about stuff like that and that they don't believe that Spurs will uh, end up winning the league. And do I believe we're going to win the league? No. I don't know. <laughs> I honestly don't know. You have to dream. You have to believe that things like this are possible. But... The longer this goes on and the more you look at our fixtures and the more you look at fixtures as being winnable, the more you think that it is a possibility. And I say it on every podcast, like it isn't because I think we're the best team. It's because I think that we, that circumstances are working very much in our favour and you can't put enough emphasis on the fact that playing once a week while every other team is playing most of them in the Carabao Cup. City are out of the Carabao Cup, but most of the other teams are in the Carabao Cup and everyone else is in Europe and they're having to play at least every two weeks, twice a week. And it just makes a huge difference to us because we can not only prepare for every game, for this time it's nine days, Friday to the following Monday. Um, we've got more time to rest, less chance for our important players to get injured. Like you see like City have obviously had Rodri and um, De Bruyne out for large parts of the season through, whether it be suspension or injury or whatever. Like, we don't have to deal with that because we're just not playing the same amount of games. So, look, will we win the league? It's pointless, obviously, speculating about that right now because we are 10 games in. But what we do have, as I always say, is momentum and we're obviously playing, people are talking, oh, then we'll find out over the next couple of fixtures. Our season isn't going to be defined on whether we get battered at Man City in December because we could go to Man City and they could batter us. It's going to be a very interesting game because for as long as I can remember, in recent times anyway, we have gone to City and gone with a game plan that's worked very much in our favour because we've accepted we're not going to have the ball. And that's a that's completely at odds with the way that Postacoglu sees the game. Will Postacoglu adapt for City? I'm sure he'll adapt to an extent, but the way that we play will still be the way that we play. So we could go there very much because City, look, there's no, I'm not a delusional idiot. City are a better football team than we are. City have better players than Spurs. There's no doubt about that. If we go and try and play them at our, their own game, and I know people said this about Arsenal, but I don't see Arsenal in even nearly the same bracket as City. You go and try and play City at their game, look, it may work out. They may have an off day. We may be brilliant. But if they're having an on day and we're not on our game, then you could go there and get battered. But that doesn't matter. We could lose to City twice, home and away. The thing that gives me sort of confidence and belief that this season could end up being something unique and special and something amazing could happen is because we are going into the other games against other teams, fully believing that we're going to win. And 
that's how you that's how a season pans out at the end of the day i saw a statistic actually when they were before the united city game on sunday that city's recent away record to teams in the top nine it was last season their away record to teams in the top nine of the league is absolutely horrendous um in recent times of uh, last season they went on to win the league but you don't win leagues because you beat your closest rivals you win them because you keep winning every other game. Arsenal didn't bottle the league last season because they lost to City. They bottled it because they were top of the league and they ended up drawing at home to Southampton, getting beaten 3-0 at home by Brighton, um, drawing away after being 2-0 up away against against Liverpool, um, drawing against West Ham. That's why Arsenal fucked the league. They didn't fuck it because they lost to City. So, and that's why I always find it weird when they're like, oh, well, wait till you play City. You're not going to... It's irrelevant, really. It's great to play them and it'll be a good gauge of how good we are as a team. But as long as you keep winning the other games, then, I mean, anything still remains possible. Um, and we're getting... Obviously, look, we all know how much rival teams hate Spurs. They're a battering... They're, they're a, a team that other fans, regardless of whether they have an actual rivalry with us or not, love to batter on social media. And that's the way it's always going to be. But, and we're getting kind of little credit in the media as well. We're getting praised to an extent, but there's been a lot of sort of like calm down involved in it. And that's fine. And they're saying, well done for now, but we'll see. Gary Neville the other day saying, yeah, this is going to calm down in a minute, in a minute, while continuing to sort of del like uh, delude himself about what Manchester United are capable of. Let them be like that. While we remain a relative underdog, that's perfect for Spurs. Um, we do better in that situation always. When things are expected of us and when it's expected that we're going to achieve something, when the pressure is on, we all almost inevitably crumble. I'm hoping that Ange has built a completely different mentality into this set of players, so hopefully that won't be the case anymore. But I much prefer being underestimated than sort of praised endlessly by other clubs. Um, that's when you're in real, that's when you're in real trouble. Um, and that brings us to our next game, which is massive. And it really is massive. Spurs Chelsea is massive anyway. We know that. Um, but it's massive for a big reason. It can't go without, I know I've seen plenty of people on Twitter saying, uh, why are people so bothered about Poch? Forget about Poch. Look, when Poch went to Chelsea in the first place, I was, wouldn't say devastated, but I was pissed off at him. I couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe he'd done it. Um, he was a manager very much in demand from a lot of different places. People are like, oh, he's got to earn a living. He could have earned a living in many different places. I'm certain about that. Pochettino had very high stock as a manager. A lot of different clubs would have wanted him. The only two you don't go to, realistically, anyway, West Ham are obviously, but he would never have gone to West Ham, are Chelsea and Arsenal. And he knows it. As much as he may, people may claim that, oh, he thinks Arsenal are our only rivals. He fucking knows it. And especially because this real hate that exists between Spurs and Chelsea, is obviously it's been there, it's been there for years, but it really, really caught fire when he was our manager in the Battle of the Bridge. That's the game that you remember the most when Chelsea, set, who finished 10th that season, celebrated winning the league, Celebrated Leicester winning the league and us not winning the league as if they'd won the league. They put 
spent a whole season that year with the season that Mourinho, if you don't remember, the season that Mourinho got sacked after winning Chelsea the league for a set for, in his second spell. Um, all the players down tools. They continued to play shit after that for the rest of the season. And they were heading to a 10th place finish, having won the league the season before. Nobody had performed, especially Eden Hazard. And then on this game, they all just woke up, turned up, acted like their lives depended on it, which is what I'd expect Spurs to do um, if the roles were reversed. But they took real pleasure in it. And then it ended up being this mental game where Spurs got nine players booked. We definitely should have had some red cards. Um, Diego Costa got his uh, eye gouge from from Moussa Dembele, um, having, like, as you can remember, sort of dug his fingers into Dembele's back. Um, it was just a horrible game, and it really sort of stoked the fires between Spurs and Chelsea on the pitch and off the pitch. And there's no doubt, oh, there's no doubt that Arsenal are our biggest rivals. There's no doubt about it. But Chelsea are a close second for me, um, and I feel like a lot of fans feel that way. Um, this whole thing about how oh, Hoddle went there, it just wasn't the same back then. Whether it's social media has driven it or anything like that, I'm not sure, but it definitely exists. There is a hatred. And if you're at Chelsea and, and if you go to Chelsea, you see that their fans live off hating Spurs. That is what it is about. We may have Arsenal as our bigger, biggest rivals, but Chelsea hate Spurs. <laughs> The same way that Arsenal hate Spurs more than anyone, Chelsea hate Spurs more than anyone, West Ham hate Spurs more than anyone. And we're not involving Millwall in this because they never play each other. But we're the most hated club by those three. And Pochettino knows it. And he knows at the beginning of every Chelsea game, they sing about hating Spurs. So he knows what he did. And look, we've had ex-Chelsea managers in Conte and Mourinho. But it, it's just different. And the reason it's different is because as Spurs fans, we've been so starved of success. We were inheriting Chelsea's successful managers, I know, but Pochettino was the only sort of beacon of light we've had as Spurs fans, really, in the last sort of 15, 20 years. We had little eras with Harry Redknapp and, and Martin Yole, but under Pochettino, we felt like we were one of the big clubs. We felt like we had we'd established ourselves in the top four. With Redknapp, we got top four twice, only played in the Champions League once, but finished in the top four twice. But fourth was the best we were ever really going to achieve under Redknapp. We got, sometimes we'd get to January and think that something might happen here, but it was very often over by then. Under Poch, we finished second with 86 points um, in 16-17. We obviously had that 15-16 title run with Leicester, he was our beacon of light. He, we felt like he was fully Spurs. He said, he even said in uh, press conferences, I would never manage Arsenal. And obviously Chelsea aren't Arsenal. But you felt at that moment that he was really, he'd really, he really loved the club as much as anything else. That he had an affiliation with the fans to the point that he wouldn't do something like that. He wouldn't go to Chelsea and manage them. But he did. The reason that it matters less now. The reason that we care less is because we've got Ange Postacoglu. And I think a lot of us, and it, it's hard to say if this would be the case if Pochettino hadn't gone to Chelsea, but a lot of us would now say, fuck Poch, we've got Postacoglu. I love Postacoglu more now than I ever loved Pochettino. And some people may well mean that. I think it's hard to be 
um, honest, really, in that situation, because the fact is Pochettino now is Chelsea manager, so we're never going to say that we loved Poch more than Postacoglu. We we just wouldn't. We just simply can't know how we'd feel about Pochettino right now compared to Postacoglu if Pochettino hadn't gone and managed Chelsea, but he has, and to me, that makes him Judas. Um, in my lifetime, the only real, real Judas has been Sol Campbell, and obviously Pochettino isn't of that level for a million different reasons. But it's the first time since then that I've really felt like betrayed by, in football terms anyway, betrayed in that sense. Um, but he comes in a very difficult situation for himself, which is why it makes this game so interesting. I think it's weird because we're fully expected to win this game by everyone, probably. Chelsea are shit. They're play, They're not playing brilliantly. They can't score goals to save their life, unless it's against Burnley away, obviously, which pretty much seems to be the case for pretty much everyone. Um, so because of that, it makes it kind of weird. Because if Chelsea were going into this game like doing really well, or they were even competing with us, for top four positions, then there'd be a different sort of dynamic about it. But because we are, Chelsea are very much the underdogs in this game and Pochettino is probably under a little bit of pressure, although you, it's very early to say that, I know, but they've lost to, did they lose to, no, they lost to Brentford at home as very, very recently. They lost to, oh, why am I forgetting who else they lost to? at home. Um, they lost to Forest. Sorry, they lost to Forest at home as well. Um, they've won one home game since March. And obviously, pre this season, that isn't Pochettino's fault. But they've only beaten Luton at home this season, Chelsea. Um, they threw away a 2-0 lead against Arsenal. And they played well in that game, but they threw it away. Like Chelsea are not playing well at the moment. He's under pressure. So that is going to give him extra motivation as if he needs it to come and get a win at Spurs. And it puts under, under, under a little bit of pressure as well. Cause like I said, I don't particularly like it when we're favorites for big games like this. I don't feel good about it. I prefer it when I come into it, expecting us to get nothing and being pleasantly surprised. Um, I do think we'll win because I think we're a better team than them. When I look at Chelsea, and I keep, I always say this, I cannot believe when I look ever, I've seen most of their games. When you look at their starting lineup and their bench, I think you spent a billion quid on what? What did you spend it on? I know they've got loads of youngsters and I know that they've obviously got Nkunku, who's, who's like injury prone to fuck, which is why it surprised me so much that they really went in for him because he got injured. He was injured for the whole of last season, pretty much. Um, at Leipzig, and then he's been injured the whole time he's been there there this uh, at Chelsea this season, which is great, obviously. Um, I just can't believe they spent a billion quid. And you look at their squad and you think, how is that a billion quid squad? And it makes me think back to the Conte Tuchel game uh, at the beginning of last season where we drew 2-2 and we were battered by Chelsea that game. I thought they were so good. I couldn't believe how good they were the football that they were playing, they were all over us. We we stole that 2-2 draw 
It was obviously brilliant, an unbelievable moment at the end when Harry Kane headed in. But we were battered by Chelsea in that game. We didn't lay a glove on them. Hoiberg's long-range goal, which was really good. Kane's header at the end. Other than that, they absolutely destroyed us. And it just makes me think, why did why did Chelsea do that to themselves? They had an unbelievable manager in Tuchel who had his players drilled to play this really good football. And I look at that squad that they had then, it really, really was decent. And now, a year later, over a year later, they've got Pochettino in, obviously a good manager, but all these players who just don't look like they fit together. Um, that's how it seems anyway. They may well click against Spurs on Monday and that's where the jeopardy in the game is really, isn't it? Because they've really got nothing. That, obviously, they're under pressure, but they've got nothing to lose because no one's expected them to go on and win this game. Um, and we are top of the league. And as I said, we will be going into this game most likely trying to reclaim top spot from at the very least Man City because they're playing Bournemouth at home and you'd be absolutely shocked if anything other than um, a trouncing from City happens on that day. Uh, and Arsenal are away at Newcastle, as I said. Um, and I think they'll lose that. I do think Newcastle will beat Arsenal at home. So it will be... An extra incentive, obviously, for us to beat Chelsea, to go top of the league and be top. And But going into our next game, which is Wolves away, uh, early kickoff. So we'll be playing Chelsea as the last game of the um, match weekend. And then we'll be playing Wolves as the first. So then with another opportunity to go a further five points clear. Um, yeah. Very, very interesting. It's just a great time. When you compare this to, to how we felt at the end of last season, it's a great feeling at the moment that we're going into games really, really confident that we're going to win them. And there's no reason that that can't keep going. Um, there's no sign at the moment that, that that this is going to derail. We look as confident as ever. If anything, we look more confident now. Obviously, like I said, with that Fulham and Palace win, they're teams we should be beating. Of course they are. But... The way we've gone about it has been very, very professional and that's really encouraging. It feels like the team is maturing um, and being able to sort of carry itself in a more mature way. Like I said, not being sort of rash, not making silly mistakes and uh, just being really, really composed. Um, and yes, yeah, those are the next two games before another fucking international break. I can't believe it. But that is the last international break until March, I think. So that's really good. We've got Chelsea and then we've got Wolves. Both winnable games. Wolves away is not easy. Um, Gary O'Neill obviously spent a whole night analysing us in that Fulham, for that Fulham game on Monday Night Football. So he will not be, uh, be getting any surprises. He'll know every single thing about us. And then we return from that... Uh, international break with a home game against Villa. And I think that that is going to be our biggest test so far this season, as mad as that sounds. Villa are really good. We're at home. They're really, really good at home. So in a way, they're not as good, but that is going to be a massive, massive test, followed by the visit to the Etihad. Uh, that's obviously over a month away. But yeah, this Chelsea game coming up. Interesting to see what... The, what percentage of the stadium sort of greets him with anger and what percentage of the stadium just stays silent. 
I would imagine the vast majority are going to boo him in whatever way you can. Obviously, like he's not going to come and walk out onto the pitch on his own. So uh, it'll be hard to sort of differentiate between who's getting booed and whether, because when Chelsea come, they're, they're all going to get booed. And whenever the Chelsea players get read out, they're always going to get booed. It'd be funny to hear if the sort of um, announcer chooses to welcome back Maurizio Pochettino. It's just such a weird situation. You just never thought you'd be welcoming You'd be bringing back Pochettino as manager of Chelsea. You always thought, I always thought he was going to come back as manager. That's obviously not going to happen now. I'd be very, very surprised. I was one of those who, before Postacoglu was even mentioned, before um, Nagelsmann, I was was one of those who was, at the end of last season, sort of singing for Pochettino. As much as anything, it was like, give us some sort of enjoyment back in our lives. Um, and I even wrote an article about the fact that I, I thought he'd be a good fit to come back. It didn't work out that way. We are so delighted to have Postacoglu now. I'm so happy that didn't happen. Um, it's kind of like when you want you you like want your ex girlfriend back because you're you've got something really really shit, and then you end up finding someone better, and then thanking God that you didn't get your ex girlfriend back because you just wanted her because it was someone to have as opposed to what might come in the future. So that's exactly what's happened with with, uh, Postacoglu. We wanted Pochettino back because he was familiar and it would have given us like someone nice to hug, nice friendly face. That's what we would have wanted. Um, But we didn't get him and he went and fucked our enemy from down the road. And then someone much more beautiful and friendly came in and uh, took her place in Postacoglu. And that's what's ended up happening. Sorry for that analogy. Uh, quite similar to something going on in my own life. Um, yeah. So that's it. Anyway, I believe we'll beat Chelsea on, on Monday. It will be very, very sweet. And um, it's going to be weird because you can't hate. I don't hate Bochettino. I really don't hate him. He gave us some great, great moments. It's going to be weird what it actually feels like if we do thrash him and we do see him sort of miserable and sad. And it might be a sad moment for him to sort of see the Spurs fans against him after all the the great times we had together. But that's what you get for going to fucking Chelsea, mate. I'm sorry. Like, you brought it upon yourself. You shouldn't have done it. And uh, I hope he does get sacked because then I can go back to having some feeling towards him. I really do. I hope it really doesn't work out for him. I don't I don't think he fits Chelsea in any way. It doesn't look right. Whenever I see him in the Chelsea sort of badge, I don't think it works. And it, it's not looking good for him. It really isn't. I think I've seen their fixtures. And I'm pretty sure they've got an absolutely horror run of fixtures starting with us on Monday night. So I'm very confident, but that always does come sort of with the caveat that when we are overly confident at Spurs. It can very, very often bite us on the arse. So we'll see what happens. But uh, yeah, that's it. Thank you very much for listening. Um, I'll do another hopefully very, very happy podcast after the Chelsea game and previewing the Wolves game. Thank you for listening. See you soon. Bye-bye.